The following lesson is brought to you by The Church of Christ on McDermott Road. Okay, let's start with the prayer, and then we'll get started. Almighty God, we are incredibly thankful to be reconciled to you through your Son, that we may approach your throne of grace with confidence, that we may ask for your blessings tonight as we study your word, as we attempt to understand what it is to be made by you and for you, to be redeemed by you. Father, we pray that you bless our study, that you uh, give us the courage to uh, accept your truths and the courage to be and live in obedience to you. Father, thank you for Jesus who makes all things possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our Greek word of the evening is sarks. Uh, or flesh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's review before we get into anything new. We are covering so much in this class, and I know that um, it kind of is a little overwhelming at times, uh, but I hope that we are reviewing enough that we're you know, gaining, gaining ground as we go one step forward, no, two steps forward, one step back. Um, and hopefully we're making some progress as we go. As we kind of get to the end of this quarter, this month, um, hopefully we can um, consider the ramifications of what we're talking about because a lot of what we're talking about is almost philosophical or theoretical, um, but we really need to get down to the brass tacks. And so I want to kind of get into a little bit of that in our review tonight, uh, but as we go, I want us to, as we kind of wrap up this month, I want us to kind of talk about the practicality of what we're learning. Um, with that being said, I want to kind of plant a seed in your mind, uh, something I've been thinking about as it pertains to this class, is that I think that the intention that I have in learning these things and passing them on to you, or what I've gained from my study, is that having a biblical view of the human self makes a person more committed to living and less afraid of dying, more committed to life, less afraid of death. Um, other worldviews don't do that, if you think about it. Um, some worldviews give the impression that um, spirituality is about disconnected living from life, right? Uh, living up in a cave somewhere and not speaking to anyone and being at peace with the world, but letting life and the world go by uh, without interacting and being disconnected from the physical world um, and in touch, as somebody might say, uh, with the spiritual world. That's not the biblical worldview, right? The biblical worldview is not about being disconnected from life. It is about living a fuller life. Uh, in fact, a lot of what we're talking about can only really be lived out. It's not about just thinking right or believing right, but about doing right. And yes, that includes our thinking and our feeling and our believing. All of those things are one uh, with the Christian view. Uh, other worldviews make it seem as if uh, our inner self and our outer self are so disconnected that real spirituality is about being disconnected from the physical world and that you could just sit and meditate on a mountaintop and that's real spirituality. According to the Bible, that's not real spirituality. Um, that would be to deny true spirituality, true religion. In fact, what does James say is true and undefiled religion? 
Absolutely. Exactly. To take care of the widows and the orphans and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. So it's not to disconnect from life. It's not to disconnect from other people. Um, In fact, real spirituality is to be more connected, uh, connected in a godly way to the people around us. We'll talk more about that in a second. So let's, let's cover these things real quick. Okay, what is your soul? Biblical worldview, what have we talked about? What is your soul? What's another word for soul? Being, yes, great word, my favorite word, being. It is your being. It is your life, it is your being, it is yourself, right? It is yourself. Usually when the Bible talks about soul, usually, there's some exceptions, but usually it's talking about your living life, right? Your, your life as, as a living being, as, as we know and experience in the world what a living being is. So um, even animals are called living souls, different kinds of living souls, but living being, living creature, a living thing. Um, thing is not a good word, but yeah. Uh, number two, what is your spirit? What's that? Breath, yes, yeah. In a literal way, it's your breath, right? That's a literal meaning of your spirit. Um, but usually when we use the word spirit, we're talking about metaphor, right? So it's a metaphor for what? Yeah, your ruach, that's, your, that's the Hebrew word, right? Breath. Animation, yes, exactly. It is your invisible presence, your inner self that animates your behavior, right? It's, it's the invisible your invisible presence that, that animates your behavior. It's, it is what drives you, right? It's like the wind in the sails of a ship. It is the invisible thing that is moving it towards something. So um, we might talk about our emotions or our mood or an inclination or um, even thoughts and ideas, um, all talking, all has, has connection to our spirit, right? Um, our spirit. And so, especially as we get to the New Testament, it is that part of us that, that even lives on after death, right? It is, it is our invisible presence. Um, and, and our invisible presence um, and our soul are connected, um, but so is our, our body. The, the, Hebrew, the Greek word there we haven't talked about and probably won't much is soma. It's your body, right? Um, but at the resurrection, you'll get a new Soma, right? A new body uh, that is imperishable and immortal, lasts forever, and your spirit and your your being, your essence, uh, your new body, that's what we're waiting for, right? Our goal is not to be a, a disembodied spirit, even though that's possible and will be what happens when you're when you die, your spirit and your body are disconnected, but that's not that's not the thing that you want, right? Paul calls that in 2 Corinthians 5, being what? You remember? Naked or unclothed, right? It's, it's, it's a naked state. You don't want to be naked. You want to be further clothed. You want to be clothed with a better body uh, than the body that you have right now. Um, okay, what is your heart? Okay, emotions, feelings, yes? Desires, yeah, that's, that's really one of the key words is desires in both Testaments, both the Old and New Testament, desires. Um, and so, and again, there's overlap, right? The, the Hebrew, there's really no word for mind. Um, sometimes it's ruach, it's spirit, and sometimes it's heart, uh, but there's really no, no brain, you know. But in the New Testament, we get to nous, and that's your mind. Um, and so 
your, your heart and your mind, again, there's some overlap. Um, Proverbs talks about the fact that your learning and your wisdom, your knowledge happens in your heart, right? Um, but, but so we're talking about the, the seat of our knowledge and our learning, the seat of our decision-making, our desires, that is our heart. Um, and again, you can kind of split that up between heart and mind, but in the Old Testament, it's all connected, right? It's all heart. Is That is the part of you where you decide what you're going to do. Now, the problem is with both our heart and our spirit is that they are what? What's the, in, in, they're what? Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, sometimes maybe they're at odds, uh, but they're both corrupt, right? Because of sin. They're defiled, they're twisted and perverted. Our spirit, our heart uh, leads us astray. It's deceitful and wicked. Uh, and so we can't trust our heart. Uh, David prays, create in me a new heart and renew a right spirit within me, an upright spirit within me. Um, the prophets prophesy that when the Messiah comes, a new spirit will be given to God's people. Breath will be breathed into them like the dry bones will be raised to life, right? And, and they'll be given a new heart. Their heart will be circumcised. The heart of stone will be taken out and they'll be given a heart of flesh. Uh, no more will a neighbor teach a neighbor, you know, uh, know the Lord because everybody will know the Lord. And it won't be like the law written on commandment or tablets of stone, but written on a heart of flesh, right? And so that's, that's the new covenant is to say from our very core, from our very desires, I want to do what is right and good. Uh, my, my, my thinking, my feeling, my desires, my, the spirit that drives me, it's all been changed uh, by what Jesus has done and what Jesus and his kingdom has ushered in. Um, Number four, what makes you unique and special in God's creation? Okay, exactly. Yes, that we are image bearers of God, right? We are image bearers of God. We are God's image bearers. We are the ones that are, were created to oversee God's good creation, right? To be the overseers of God's creation. Uh, we messed that up pretty royally right in the beginning, right? Because we decided we were going to seize control of the knowledge of good and evil rather than trusting God uh, and keeping the off-limits things off-limits, we went ahead and plunged into that and uh, experienced, uh, began to know and be aware of good and evil, um, and our hearts, our spirits are corrupted, and we follow, well, we'll talk about what we follow in a second. Um, what makes the taking of any human life tragic and ultimately sinful, right? Uh, God says, as soon as Noah and his family get off the ark, and he says, hey, you can eat any animal, right? You can eat any animal, that's fine, but don't kill a human being. Why? God's image bears. God's image bears, right? They are God's image bears. And for every human life, there will be an accounting, right? If an animal kills a human, that animal needs to die. If a human kills a human, that human needs to die, right? Um, Death is, is what happens. And so uh, it's tragedy when an image bearer of God uh, dies or is killed uh, because they are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are the royal image bearers of God. Um, and that's what's unique about the Christian view is that we believe that's true of every living person, right? Every person is that. 
uh, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their heritage, regardless of male or female, regardless of status in the community, regardless of money, regardless of royalty. We are all the royal image bearers of God. Are there all kinds of implications for that? Yes. There are all kinds of implications for that. And I would say that is one of not only the distinguishing marks of Christianity, uh, the Christian view, the, you could even say the Judeo-Christian view, um, of what it means to be a human being, um, but it, it touches on almost every moral issue you could think of, right? Uh, it touches on so very much to say human beings are sacred, right? They are sacred. Um, much like an idolater would feel about an idol that is the image bearer of its, his God, that's how we feel about each other, right? And it makes sense that Jesus would send his people out into the world to love their neighbors, to love their enemies, because their enemies even are image bearers of God. Um, and, and the brokenness of humanity uh, the result of the fall, the primary example of that wickedness is the oppression and the mistreatment, the manipulation and the murder of other image bearers, right? That that's what ends up happening with humanity. That's the wickedness that God destroys in the flood, the wickedness that is perpetrated after the flood, the Tower of Babel. Uh, we oppress each other. We enslave each other. We kill each other. And this is the height of wickedness and wrongness and evil in the world, is the mistreatment of people. And God gives rules for even the treatment of animals, right? How animals should be treated. But his ultimate concern, his greatest concern, is how we treat other people. Um, in fact, when you start to look at um, righteousness and wickedness, this is a study I've been doing this week um, on what it means to be righteous, what a righteous person is. Um, now, we understand that no one is perfectly righteous, right? But when, especially like the Proverbs writers talk about righteousness and what, who a righteous person is and who a wicked person is, a righteous person is somebody that goes out of his or her way to take care of other people, right? Um, especially in the law. God had four people especially that he created laws to protect the most vulnerable people in society, which were who? Orphans, we kind of touched on that with James, didn't we? And, and going right along with that, widows and orphans, the poor, and, and what? And that would definitely be in there. Usually the poor would be sick or the sick would be poor, absolutely. The other is the stranger, the sojourner, the foreigner, right? Um, and though, especially those four people, the poor, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, God said, God creates special laws to take care of those people because wicked people have a tendency to oppress those people, right? The, the most vulnerable people of society get oppressed and taken care of, taken advantage of. Um, and God creates laws that says righteous people, the upright people will take care of those people. Um, and so he creates systems and structures so that they will be taken care of. But ultimately wicked people disregard those, right? And they, they cheat, right? They, they have, uh, balances and weights that are off so that they can cheat people out of their money. They cheat. Even you go up to Jesus' time, and Jesus even rebukes the people like the Pharisees for taking advantage of widows, right? Um, and so God is concerned, 
And that's what's so remarkable about the Bible, that God is concerned about people that other cultures were not concerned about. Nobody in other cultures was concerned about a slave. And if you killed a slave, or you took advantage of a slave, or you, you know, violated a slave, who cares? They're a slave, right? God does not feel that way, because a slave is an image bearer of God. Um, other cultures treated women like, like cattle, and God says, no, the woman is taken from the man. And, and I realized that we, we can look at the Bible and say, well, that still seems um, so male-dominated. Well, the only reason we think that, the only reason that we have any concept of the equality of men and women um, and that women should be treated with kindness and respect and love and that men should lay down their lives for their wives, the only reason we think that way is because of the gospel, right? The only reason we think that way is because the Bible has shaped Western thought, right? Before that, nobody thought that way. Cultures didn't think that way. Um, the, the biblical view of humanity and personhood and womanhood um, and the image-bearing nature of mankind has been shaped by Scripture. Um, and, and we are forever indebted to, to that. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely remarkable, and, um, and that's what makes, for the most part, a person righteous is somebody who, I read this definition this week, that somebody who disadvantages themselves for the advantage of their community are righteous people who give to the poor, who take care of the widow and the orphan, um, and the wicked are the opposite. There are those who advantage themselves at the disadvantage of their community. They disadvantage others so that they can advantage themselves, right? And we see that in our world, don't we? That that's what wicked people do. They look out for, we say, look out for number one, right? Or look out for themselves. Um, and, that's, and, and, that's, and, and we've all done that, right? We've all done that. Whether we like it or not, we've been greedy and covetous. We've looked out for ourselves, even to the detriment of other people. Um, and, and so then we get into the new covenant and we talked last week about God's, Spirit, God's Ruach that has come into the church and has breathed life into us, has given us a different mindset, has given us a different life, um, both through the apostles' ministry and through the equipping of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 is a great text to look at on how the Spirit has come in, how God, how Jesus has sent His Spirit to equip and manifest himself in the church and give life and power um, and animation to who we are and what we do, right? And so the presence of God in the church through the Spirit, that life-giving presence of God is really what the whole Bible is about, right? It, 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 that's what the Old Testament was about in that God was choosing a people to dwell with them in a tabernacle, right? And but in Christ, he dwells with us and we are the temple of God, right? We are the temple of God and God's spirit lives within us and gives us life and breath and everything. Okay, so um, that's why God's spirit and why his presence are necessary. Without God's spirit, there is no life, right? Without God's spirit, Romans chapter 8, whoever does not have the spirit does not have Christ, right? You the Spirit of God has to live in us, otherwise we are dead. With our own spirits, and our own hearts, and our own flesh, then we are dead. But with the Spirit of God living within us, uh, we, we have life. 
right? And everything is to his credit, to his glory. Okay, now let's talk about our sarks, our flesh. Okay, now there is, I think, an unfortunate translation, okay? I'm just going to say that. And some of you may totally disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, I might be wrong, you might be wrong, but God isn't, okay. Um, But um, there's an unfortunate translation. I think that some translations have chosen to translate the phrase or the word sarks as sinful nature, sinful nature. Um, Now, we'll talk about why they chose that phrase. Um, There's some reason, and I think there's some legitimate reason why. Um, But ultimately, I I think that it's a mistake because you can't be consistent with that. Um, And it hides what's really being said. Um, And I think that human beings are smart enough to read the Bible um, and and see a literal word like flesh. That's what sarks means. It just means flesh. Um, And there's a metaphor that goes along with it. It's just like spirit, right? Spirit is both literal breath and metaphor breath of life, or, you know, not breath of life, but, but animating breath, the animating presence um, that's within us. So uh, it's both literal and a metaphor, and flesh is both literal and a metaphor. So let's talk about the literal sense. In a literal sense, flesh refers to a person or animal's soft outer tissue, right? I don't have a better word than that, um, but soft outer tissue. That's, I mean, that, you know, I mean, that's just literal what we mean when we say flesh. So if I say, we don't really talk about it we don't really use that word, I guess, a whole lot now, but, um, but flesh in a very little sense is, is your skin and your fat and this fleshy stuff that's covering our bones and our muscles. Um, and so that's literally what it means in Scripture and um, in our world. Um, so when Jesus says, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, that's why there's some confusion, right? It's like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? I, that sounds kind of gross to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, okay, so, so there's, there's that uh, literal meaning of the word flesh, but uh, flesh can also refer to, we're kind of getting into metaphor, but I, I kind of want you to see, I put it in this order, and I, like always, I haven't included all the verses and probably not even all the different senses in which nuances of the word, but um, I kind of put it in this order so we can kind of see for me anyway, a flow of thought. So flesh can also refer to our physical relation to someone, our physical relation to someone. Um, I, I put this in this category. It may not it's supposed to be, I don't know. But um, this is, you know, we, we say that when a husband and a wife are married, then they become one flesh, right? They become one body, one, what would you say? Being, yeah, yeah. Uh, they become one, one body. They're united with each other in a physical way. But there's also a sense in which they become one family, right? They become a family. Um, and I think that that's, that's a lot of what um, is being implied uh, by God saying in the beginning. He says, okay, I've created these two fleshly creatures. And in, in the normal relationship, there'll be a mother and a father, and they'll come together and of course, in Adam and Eve's case, there was no mother and father. But there'll be a mother and a father, and they'll come together in a sexual union, in a fleshly union, and they'll create a son. And then that son will leave that union, and he will go and have a union with his wife, and they will be one flesh. They will be one family. Um, and, and in that way, because we've all come from the same flesh, we are all related, right? Uh, God formed our flesh from the ground, so we're earthly, fleshly creatures, 
and then through sexual union, we have all become a part of the same family. And so flesh can refer to um, a physical relation to somebody, not only the two becoming one flesh, but also in the sense of um, according to the flesh relation, let's see, uh, maybe um, Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, so obviously Paul means that physically he was descended from David, right? He was physically descended from David. Um, we might also say um, Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, our forefather according to the flesh. So sometimes Paul often talks about in Romans about my kindred according to the flesh, right? His Jewish brethren. So we're saying we're related, right? Uh, we, we're all we're part of the same family. Okay, so sometimes flesh can refer to a physical relation to someone. Um, okay, now here's where we get a little bit complicated. A synecdoche. Anybody know what a synecdoche is? The synecdoche. <laughs> Rome under the bus. Huh? Uh, a synecdoche is, here, here's an example. This is my favorite example. If I say, hey, come outside. I want to show you I got a new set of wheels. Okay, if I say I've got a new set of wheels, you don't go outside expecting to see four wheels laying on the ground, right? What do you expect to see? A car. I don't literally mean four wheels. It is four wheels, but the part stands for the whole, right? The part stands for the whole. And so a synecdoche, and that's used a lot in Scripture, um, where a part of a person is used to describe that whole person. Um, and so flesh can be used to refer to a human person. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word became flesh, it doesn't mean that the Word became skin, right? I mean, it did. It became Jesus. Jesus had skin, but not just skin, right? It also became bones, and it became blood, and it became hearts, and it became all of those things. And so flesh can be a synecdoche, a part that stands for the whole. So when it's talking about just being a human person, a physical person, a being, um, we, can use, we can use the word flesh. So can you see how there is some overlap between what we might say soul and we might say flesh? Right? Because soul can mean a living being, a human person, that soul, that soul, that soul, um, and so can flesh. It can mean that, that person. There's, there's a different connotation to it, though, isn't there? There's a little, slightly different connotation, but they can be used in that same sense. So again, that's why I say that these words that we're talking about are not really interchangeable. You can't say the word flesh and the word soul are interchangeable. That's not true. But you can say there are, at times, some overlap in some of their nuances, right? Um, the same would be true, I, I don't know why my mind always goes to house and home. Um, there's some overlap between house and home, uh, but there's differences in connotation, right? And I could say, well, not every house is a home. You kind of know what I mean, right? Because there's a difference between the connotation. But I could also say, I'm going home, or I'm going to my house, and there's really no difference, right? And so there's overlap, but you, they're not strictly interchangeable, okay? Um, so several times it's used in that way as a human being. Um, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, for by works of the law, my translation says, no human being will be justified in his sight. Literally, it says, for by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Um, but 
the translators didn't want to confuse us, and so they said, well, it's a synecdoche, it's talking about the whole person. Um, so there's a, a few times that that is used that way. Um, number four, flesh can also be used to refer to humanity or groups of humanity. Again, I, I'm distinguishing these from each other, but even in these points that I'm making, there's some overlap, right? So if I say flesh can refer to our relation to each other, so when you say, when the Bible says things like um, God's Spirit will be, Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, poured out on all flesh, right? It doesn't mean on everybody's skin, right? That's not what it means, that the Spirit will be poured out on everybody's skin. Um, and it doesn't mean the Spirit of God will be poured out on everybody's sinful nature, okay? Do you see how already it wouldn't make sense to translate Sarks as sinful nature across the board? That I mean, just wouldn't make sense at all, uh, because then you would have to say that Jesus had a sinful nature. Um, and so, so here it's being used to say humanity, right? We are flesh. We are flesh. Um, and we'll talk about the, the connotation to that word and, and why it's a little bit different than soul, but, but we are flesh. We are humanity, groups of humanity, or individual people. We're flesh. We are human beings. Um, and, and really, that has a, an emphasis on our mortality. I'll just go ahead and tell you. It has an emphasis to our mortality. Um, and, 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 and you can see that connection to um, animal life too, right? Um, and, and we're told that, that there's different kinds of flesh. Animal, there's animal flesh, and there's human flesh, there's bird flesh, there's fish flesh. Um, but, but we're all creatures of flesh, right? We're creatures that have been made from the earth. So there's also a connection between um, earthliness. In fact, sometimes uh, my translation translates flesh as earthly. Um, but you can see why, right? Because there's a connection to the fact that we were formed from the earth and the animals were formed from the earth and we are all these mortal creatures. In fact, Ecclesiastes explores that idea a lot, doesn't it? And it's like, I don't, I don't know. What's the difference between a human being and an animal? In the end, we die, right? And at the end, you could be a rich human being or a poor human being, and in the end, you're going to die. You could be a wise human being or a foolish human being, and in the end, you're going to die. And you can, you can have all the fun in the world and enjoy every pleasure, or you can be a monk and not enjoy anything, and, and in the end, you're going to die. And it seems like a depressing book, right? It seems like, uh, what's, what are you saying here, right? Uh, what, what, what's the point? But in the flesh, I mean, that, that's all there is. And so, but the end of the matter, when everything has been heard, is what? Fear God, right? Keep His commandments. And this is the duty of man. And, and put trust your, your soul, your life, to God. And even though you're mortal, there's this hope, right? There's this hope of resurrection um, and, and a new body. But when we talk about the fact that we are flesh, there is a sense of mortality to that. That's what it means to be flesh, is to be a being who is mortal. And that's what we are. We are a mortal uh, being. Um, number five, similar to our idiom, our figure of speech, skin deep. When we say that, skin, it's only skin deep. What do we mean by that? We don't mean, okay, wait, what's the depth of my skin? If I poke a needle, I don't mean, and I don't even want to think about measuring the depth of my skin. But, uh, but what do I mean by that, skin deep? Okay, yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, it's saying, it's saying that there, there's a depth to this, but then there's an inner self, right? There's, there's more to me than just what meets the eye, right? And usually we mean that 
that maybe what's on the inside doesn't really match what's on the outside, right? We say beauty is only skin deep, meaning that a person could be beautiful on the outside and on the inside, not so beautiful, right? Uh, and so we, we mean by skin deep, it's an idiom, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech to talk about outward appearances, right? The outward appearance. And so um, I think that sometimes that, that Paul or Jesus can mean um, flesh to mean the outward appearance, the way things appear, the way things look on the outside according to the flesh, uh, the physical appearance. Um, and, and this is, I think, I, again, I think that there's so many connections between all of these different points. That, that's the way words work, isn't it? That words aren't, they, they might have different nuances where you mean something different, a little bit different in a different context, but there's a connection between them all. They're not just totally strange. I don't say house and sometimes I mean the place where I live and other times I mean food that I eat. I mean, that would be strange. I, 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 it has to be connected somehow, right? There has to be a connection between the nuances of the words. And so when we say, when we say the flesh, we mean the, the outward physical appearance of things. And, you know, circumcision um, is a fleshly thing, right? Um, and, and a person can be circumcised. And in fact, that, that's a discussion of flesh, isn't it? It's a cutting away of the flesh. And, and a person can be fleshly circumcised, but their heart isn't right? And their circumcision is outward. Um, it's appearance. I don't really know how that works with people knowing that other people were circumcised, but uh, that's a whole different discussion. But, uh, but, but there's this, this outward appearance of spirituality and belonging to God, but on the inside, it's something different, isn't it? And, and, and that, that is a good metaphor for what the religion of the Jews had become, right? In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were outwardly, fleshly circumcised, but their hearts weren't circumcised. Their hearts weren't devoted to God. Their flesh was devoted to God. Their outward appearance was devoted to God. Their, their externals were devoted to God, but their heart, their spirit was not devoted to God. And, and that's even what Paul gets into in Galatians, isn't it? With the people that, I mean, they're so concerned about circumcision and they're like, hey, you Christians, you think you Gentiles can just come into God's people. We've been God's covenant people for thousands of years. And you just think you could just waltz right in here. You believe in Jesus. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to accept you as part of the family. You need to get circumcised and you need to keep the law. And so Paul's whole point is, what difference does that make? I mean, really, it was important. It was a sign of the, the original covenant that God had with the Jewish people. But in the end, what difference does circumcision make? If your flesh is marred, but your spirit still is hard and covered with flesh on the inside, then, then, then nothing has really changed. And you're not really God's circumcised people, right? It's your heart that needs to be circumcised. The, the, the tough flesh needs to be cut away. And I know that's a horrible metaphor, but it's a biblical metaphor. Um, and so, so that really is an important part of this discussion, I think, is there is the literal sense of flesh, but then there's also this metaphor that speaks to either the outward appearance of things or the mortality of things or the corruptibility of things, um, the frailty of things. And that's where I think number six gets us. Flesh most often, especially in Paul's letters, uh, is a metaphor for our moral or physical corruptibility or frailty. 
Okay, I don't know which word I like better. Corruptibility has a really negative connotation to it, but you know what I mean by physical corruptibility? I mean, physically things corrupt, right? I mean, if I leave an apple outside, um, it is a thing of flesh, right? And so it's, it's corruptible, it's gonna decay, it's gonna get nasty, and it's not gonna take very long, and it's gonna, it's gonna be gone. But the same is true with our bodies, right? Our flesh, um, it, it's going to decay. It is, it is corruptible, it is, is breaking down, it is dying. Uh, and so when we are spoken of as being flesh, it's talking about the, the aspect of being a human being that is corruptible in a literal sense, in a figurative metaphor sense. It's talking about the fact that morally, morally, we are corruptible creatures, right? Morally, we are weak. Morally, we are frail. Morally, we have not shown the strength to do what we are supposed to do. So there is an aspect of our human nature that is frail and corruptible easily influenced, easily led astray, easily destroyed, right? And we've shown ourselves to, ha to be creatures of flesh. Now, does that fact that we are susceptible to corruptibility, does that fact mean that we have sinned? No, it just means you're susceptible to it, right? Uh, the same as your flesh in a physical sense, which means you're susceptible to disease doesn't necessarily mean you have a disease, but it means you're susceptible to disease. It means you're susceptible to death. It means you're mortal. Uh, the fact that we are flesh morally means that we are susceptible to sin. It means that we are morally frail. We are morally corruptible. And Jesus came not only literally in the flesh, right? He had skin and he could die and he was killable but he was morally corruptible, right? That doesn't mean he was corrupted. He wasn't. It, it means that he was susceptible to sin. It means that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So he came in the flesh. He came able to be tempted, able to sin, yet he did not. And it's only because he came in the flesh, in every way possible, he came in the flesh. He came as a fleshly creature. He came as our brother to redeem flesh, humanity, right? Not just his Jewish fleshly brothers, but his human fleshly brothers. He came to be a second Adam. As the first Adam's corruptibility led to sin, this Adam's corruptibility and ability to be tempted because of his righteousness led to our righteousness. He took our place. The sin that we've committed was condemned in his flesh, and yet because he was sinless, death could not hold him. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't condemned by death because he wasn't a slave of the law of sin and death because of his perfection. But he had to come in the flesh in order to condemn sin in the flesh. Okay, so this is, this is Paul's major point in Romans and Galatians to tell us, listen, you've been set free from walking like human beings do. You've been set free from living like frail, mortal people. Now you have God's Spirit, you have God's revelation, you have God's Son, you have been given new life, you've been given a new heart. Don't walk according 
to your flesh. Don't you, you can, right? You're capable of doing that. You're capable of living according to the flesh. Like you lived before in your susceptibility. Maybe gullible is a good word, right? Gullible, right? I mean, and that's what, that's what Adam and Eve were, fleshly creatures that were easily susceptible, tricked into sin, right? They were gullible and they were, they were lied to, deceived. At least Eve was deceived. And then she gave the apple to, sorry, fruit. I don't know if it was an apple. Um, okay, <laughs> look at Galatians chapter 5, because I think this is helpful. Galatians chapter 5, we're about out of time. But Galatians 5 and Romans 7 and 8, in fact, I think this is exactly what Paul means in Romans 7. A lot of times people read Romans 7 and they say, well, see, Paul still struggled with sin and I'm sure Paul struggled with sin, but, but that I don't think is what he's talking about. He's talking about when we lived in the flesh, and I wanted to do what was right and good, but the law seized an opportunity, the law evoked something in me and this sin, and, and I did what I didn't want to do because of the weakness of my flesh, because my flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is what flesh is. It is our weakness. It is our Achilles heel, as it were. Okay, so look at uh, Galatians 5, starting verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Um, I've been thinking about this this afternoon. Does, does Paul mean the Holy Spirit, or does he mean our spirit? I think that it's unnecessary to make a distinction, right? If we're a Christian, and the Spirit of God, working through the apostles' ministry, breathing life into the church, is working in my spirit, then, then that's what is going to drive me. That's what I'm going to walk by, is what, is what is good and what is right and what is true, what the Spirit, but the breath of God. And isn't that an amazing thought, that the breath of God, breathing life into us and animating our behavior, um, again, through His Spirit, through the Word, through our Spirit, I mean, just all of these things. I think sometimes we try to dice and slice everything to try to figure out how it all works, but the, the idea is it's lived out, right? It's lived out. Don't just sit around and philosophize about it. Go live it out. Walk by the Spirit. It's talking about living. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of your weakness, right? Your flesh. That might be a good way to, to kind of paraphrase it the desires of your weakness, the desires of your corruptibility, the desires of your frailty. You won't gratify those desires if you're walking by the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And again, I think that ties back to Romans chapter 7, where Paul is talking about that war that's kind of going on, and I want to do good, but then I don't, I do the sinful thing I don't want to do, and I don't want to do the wrong thing, and then I end up doing it. And he ends up saying, who's going to deliver us from this? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives us this victory so that no more do we have to walk by the flesh. Now we can walk by the Spirit and be set free from the law of sin and death. Uh, to keep you from doing the things you want to do, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's what, here's what fleshly living looks like. Now again, does the flesh have a connection to sin? Yes, absolutely. 
But again, do you see why I say sinful nature is not a good translation? Because that assumes that sin is a given, right? It assumes that you are incapable of not sinning since that's your nature, right? Um, and I think that's what the translators meant because that kind of is the Calvinistic slant on things. Um, but literally, it says the flesh, the works of the flesh. This is what happens. This is what it looks like when you walk according to your moral corruptibility. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Now, hold on just a second. So do you see that when it talks about works of the flesh, it's not just talking about external things, right? Don't get confused by the metaphor to think that it's just about things you can touch and smell and taste and feel. And It's not just about your skin. That's a metaphor. It's talking about your corruptibility. And a lot of your corruptibility happens on the inside. Your real fleshly problem isn't a matter of this skin. This skin isn't bad. It's good, right? I mean, it's good. We know it's good, right? I mean, when, when a husband and a wife are married and, and they experience a kiss even, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. When, when we eat good food that was created to be received with Thanksgiving, it's a good thing. Taste buds. I'm so glad God gave us taste buds. They're a good thing, right? I mean, they're good, right? It's good. The, the physical, it's not bad. So when he's saying the flesh, it's not just talking about physical things. Jealousy and envy, these things are fleshly problems on the inside. They are about our moral corruptibility, but you don't have to walk. Because you've been given a new heart and a new spirit, you don't have to walk according to the flesh. Now, if that's all you know, if you've never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's, that's just what you do. You just try to figure stuff out and you figure it out. This hurts. I don't want to do that. This, uh, this feels good. I think I want to do that. And you just kind of figure things out following your own desires. But because of your moral susceptibility, you're going to end up doing these things, being sexually immoral, being impure, being sensual, being idolatrous, being a sorcerer, be, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? That this is not how we walk. We've received a new way of living, and it's a way of living that's not according to our own desires of right and wrong. Because nobody, I mean nobody... Some people maybe. There may be people out in the world that say, I want to do what's bad. I want to be evil. I just want to do... Nobody's saying that. They're just doing what's right in their own eyes. They're walking by a morality that is shaped by the flesh, by our, our moral corruptibility. But we love them, don't we? And we, we are them, and we were them. We are one flesh. We are one family. We're all created in God's image. And so because we love them, and because we love the God in whose image we're created, we go to rescue them, and we tell them that the end of living by the flesh is death, and you're a slave, and you're caught in this trap. And I know you want to do the right thing, and I know you want to do the good thing, but the only way to live righteously is to stop living by the flesh and let God's Spirit through the Word, and through the apostles' ministry and doctrine that we've received in the Word, through Jesus and through salvation in Christ, and the Spirit that He's breathed into His church, through these spiritual things, then you can learn to walk by the Spirit 
and not by the flesh. And we've received the way to walk. And it's radical. And it's different. And it, there's times when we're like, this doesn't make sense. I mean, how does it make sense that I'm supposed to lay down my life for somebody else? How does it make sense that I'm supposed to consider other people more significant than me, right? I got to look out for number one. I got to take care. No, no, no. That's the fleshly way of living. Or trying to impress people. I'm so religious. I'm good. I'm, I just don't worry about me. I've got things figured out. I'm good. Wait, wait, wait. That's the flesh, right? We've got to learn to walk by, and this is what the whole New Testament is. It's teaching us what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. And the fruit of that, the fruit of that living is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. We can live. We don't have to have a rule that says, okay, in this situation, you have to do this. In this situation, you have to do this. In this situation, you have to do this. We just say, follow Jesus, right? And the apostles will teach you in the New Testament what it looks like to follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you walk by the Spirit, then this is the result. When you walk by the flesh, this other, the works of the flesh are the result. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit ccmcdermott.org.